Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, my sons would call Greg, is it? On, he would call him a boomer for his lack of ability to handle technology effectively. <clears throat> I don't really understand what they're talking about, but if you've ever felt like a boomer, uh, that is kind of where we find ourselves today in our conversation. If I can just start by taking you back, I think it's like 25-some years. I'm 19. Uh, I'm in my first semester uh, at Ontario Bible College now Tyndale University College and Seminary. Uh, and I am uh, in my first couple of weeks, and I am there because uh, Ryerson uh, Polytechnical Institute at the time has invited me not to come back for my third semester of engineering. So I am at OBC, and I am, to be honest, just a little bit insecure. And insecurity, that sense of kind of not really knowing kind of not, not really being sure of yourself is just not a good place, is it? I think, uh, maybe you're like me, that my worst moments usually come out of seasons of insecurity. So uh, I'm settling into my first couple weeks at a new, a new community, a new school, uh, and I hear that there are varsity volleyball tryouts. And I think to myself, I like volleyball. I played volleyball all through high school number of my friends went on to play college and university volleyball, I should try out. So I find out when it is, move towards the gym at the right time, come into the gym, guys are scrimmaging in the middle of the floor, good sign. There's a guy sitting on the stage. Say, well, I'll make my way towards this guy. And uh, move towards him, and as I get close, he just takes initiative, jumps right out with his hand, and he says, hi, my name's Kevin, there's an insecure pause, and I respond knowing I can't leave it too long with my hand, and I say, hi, my name's Jay. Looking back on that moment, right, that insecure pause was insecure Jay coming to a very interesting conclusion in that little nanosecond that my new friend Kevin was a super funny guy who thought he would introduce himself with a fake stutter. No one else thinks that's an interesting conclusion to come to. There was an awkward pause, and I kind of sit beside him and uh, get my shoes on, get ready. Notice there's a clipboard beside me, and I sign my name on the clipboard, obviously for everyone who's trying out. And, uh, and then, kind of moments later, my new friend Kevin picks up the clipboard and walks to the middle of the gym, blows a whistle, and starts the tryout. So Kevin is now framing the tryout and everything that's going on, and my stomach is kind of getting twisted and tighter and tighter knots as I realize Kevin is the coach of the volleyball team, in charge of the tryout, and Kevin doesn't actually have a fake stutter. It's a real stutter. 
And you're thinking, Jade, you didn't make the team, did you? <clears throat> and ironically, I actually did make the team. So I made the team, uh, I'd like to think, because Kevin was an exceptionally mature, grace-filled, uh, godly man who uh, saw through the insecure, lame attempt of Jay to be funny in the moment and, uh, and kind of just forgave me and moved on. But it may be the fact that there were no other setters that were trying out for the team at the time. And, and I, did, I did actually make the team. And, and I had two years of working with Kevin. I was actually captain, and we forged a really, really good friendship, uh, despite me and my big mouth. And that was a moment for me, which maybe you, as, fellow, as well as Greg, who was up here earlier this morning on the screen, uh, recognizing that our mouths can get us into a lot of trouble. And that kind of that moment where we just kind of say something, whew, not good, a little bit scary. Uh, but that is the series that we find ourselves in. And, uh, and this is week four of the series, and maybe because it's summer, you haven't been here all the way through. I haven't actually been here for one of the whole series. But I still feel like I'm a part of it because I've been following uh, by listening on the podcast as well as uh, the videos on, on the Pathway website. Uh, so I kind of feel like I know what's going on, which is a great reminder for all of us that we can't always be here on a Sunday, uh, but we've got great tools that allow us to be able to feel uh, like we're here and to kind of track along with the conversations that are happening. So let me do a quick recap in terms of where we've been, because maybe you haven't been here for, for any or many of this series. Uh, but we started with uh, really an, an encouragement, a baseline kind of foundational statement from James, the brother of John, or James, the brother of Jesus, from James chapter 1, verse 19. It said, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And again, this is just good, solid advice. This is just the kind of thing that doesn't matter if you are a follower of Jesus or not. You just can't go wrong with this kind of advice. This is just good stuff. And it emerges out of the awareness that our mouths are untamable. There's this kind of sense that our mouths can just quickly get us into trouble. They are always a threat to the things and people we value most. Right? And that's just a good uh, kind of reality check for us. And, and I'm going back again, and I have some of these moments in my life, maybe like you do, where you realize just how quickly our mouth can get us in trouble, and we can kind of cause damage to the people that we value most. Right? And when I think of who are the people I value most, I'm, I'm thinking about my wife, and she's, you know, she's obviously at the top of the list. Right? You're wondering where I was going to put her in the list, but she's at the top of the list, right? And, uh, and I still remember her first Mother's Day, all right? So this is like, you know, 23 years ago, and Noah had been born in March, and this is May, right? And, and on that first Mother's Day, she asked me this strange question, where's my Mother's Day card? And I, too quickly now I'm aware, just responded and said, but you're not my mother, right? And that was just a response where I realized James had some good advice there. Be quick to listen. What is she actually saying? And be slow to speak. And, uh, and I quickly spoke and said, you're not my mother, which was missing the opportunity to affirm the mother of my first child. Actually, she's the mother of all of my children. And, <laughs> and, and that was a great opportunity that I missed and a reminder that uh, our mouth and our words are always a threat to the things and people we value most. We also talked about not wanting to be this guy, 
right? Do we have, do we have this guy? Yeah. All right, and if you missed this, this is uh, fish mouth, all right? Fish mouth is what we're trying to avoid. It emerged out of Ephesians 4, where Paul said, let no distasteful, dishonoring, or degrading words come out of your mouth, all right? And another great, just bottom line, wise kind of perspective in life. Um, but as, as followers of Jesus, we believe that every person's made in the image of God and is someone for whom Christ died. So that dignity and honor and respect that we afford to all people because they are made in the image of God reminds us of just how important our words are. Now, <clears throat> my kids give me a, a hard time for a lot, almost everything actually, now that I think about it, that I do or say. Uh, and I have the kind of this story where I go back and warn my kids every once in a while that if you're not careful, I might make you do what we did as kids. My, my mother, I think, was concerned for, with me and my sisters, how negative our conversations were with each other. And so there was a season where she um, required us to be wearing elastic bands on our wrist. And the idea was that whenever we were being like critical or sarcastic or discouraging or just something that was not positive, um, and I still can't remember whether or not we were supposed to snap ourselves or if we got to snap the other person who had been negative. Obviously, it's a lot more fun with the idea of being able to snap the other person, but, but I, the idea was my mom was trying to connect those dots that our words actually impact the people around us. And, uh, and so this morning, yeah, parents, if you're looking for an opportunity of how you can reinforce, I really encourage you to try the elastic band thing, um, particularly uh, the idea of being able to snap the other person when they say something really negative. I think that's what kind of amps up the motivation. Um, but the, the word pictures that Paul gives us emerge out of this idea that, that uh, conversations are construction sites. To be able to think about the idea when we have conversations with people that they are the opportunity to either build up or to tear down. And that w- the words are building material. So when we think of conversations, it's what we're saying that has the potential to build up or to tear down. So... Uh, one of the conclusions that we came out of that, which I think is just, again, great to be able to say that every conversation that we have with someone, that our goal should be that they are always better and stronger after speaking with us, right? What a great goal. What a great kind of uh, standard to be able to say, to help us to avoid getting into the ditches of, of where our conversations can go. And then the idea that we need to get rid of bitterness And that's because it's difficult to be a builder, someone who builds people up in conversation, if you're bitter. And this is is a profound statement, isn't it? To appreciate how difficult it is to be a builder if you're bitter. Because have you ever wondered why it is that hurt people hurt people? It's kind of one of those sad realities that mostly we notice in the people around us, right? How can it be that that kid who got bullied just a few months or a few years later, is bullying other kids? How is it that the neglected sons become demanding husbands? How is it that abandoned daughters turn into suspicious wives? It's because bitterness, resentment, that sense of of having something happen to us that we feel like we're holding someone accountable for, it hangs with us and it kind of permeates and kind of destroys all of our relationships. Bitterness convinces us that we are owed, that we need to get even with those that hurt us. So if we do the work of getting rid of bitterness and anger, we position ourselves to be heroes in our own stories. And I love that phrase. I love that idea 
of being able to look at our lives um, with the goal of, of being heroes in our own stories. Uh, and to do that, we have to kind of be conscious of the danger of bitterness. And, uh, and that's because sometimes what goes around comes around. And today we're going to talk about this connection of how bitterness allows us to be in the best possible place uh, for when that moment comes where what goes around comes around. Sometimes the powerless, someone who have had been taken advantage of, find themselves in a position of power, and the people who hurt you may need you. What do you do in that moment? Well, how we leverage our words in those moments has as much to say about who we are and what we're all about as anything else. And so to be in a better position to be the hero in your own story, we are actually going to talk a little bit about what I think is maybe the best story, the greatest story, maybe apart from the story of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, but the greatest story that I think exists in all literature. And, uh, and I think it is one that has a lot to teach us. So a little bit about the context to set up this story. Uh, if we go back to the beginning, especially if you don't have context or a lot of history with kind of the Christian, the New Testament, the Old Testament, we go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis. We have the beginning of Genesis framing the idea of how the universe comes into existence. And again, it reminds us of how powerful words are because it, it, it shares this idea that God speaks the universe into existence. Let there be light and there is light. That's the logos. This is the idea of, of God manifesting his intention through words and that those words are actually what creates reality around us. But we move through the first 12 chapters and then we're introduced into uh, a really key character and that's Abram. Becomes Abraham. Abraham and Sarah are, uh, God speaks to them and invite them from kind of where they are, everything that's kind of safe, uh, their culture, their context, their community, and invites them to step out and pursue a place that they, they were going to be told about because God was going to make them the parents, the father of a nation that would bless the world, all right? Challenges, of course, if you know the story, is that Abram's old, his wife is old, they are both, uh, they don't have any kids, Sarah, to this point, is barren. So the idea of becoming the father of a great nation, obviously, is, is filled with drama and expectation. Isaac is born, and we have the beginning of this revelation, this, this uh, covenant promise of Abram being the father of a nation that would bless the world. It begins to unravel. It begins to kind of un, uh, unfold. Isaac's born, and then Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Now we're beginning to have this sense of, of how this one man could father a great nation that could eventually bless the world. And it's at this point we begin to appreciate one of the 12 sons of Jacob named Joseph and how the whole enterprise of God's covenant promise to Abraham would hinge on Joseph's ability to respond at a crucial time. Now, let's talk about Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. He was Jacob's favorite son because he was the son of his favorite wife, which was Rachel. And Jacob had two sons, Leah and Rachel. Leah was the older, uh, older wife who he kind of got conned into having to marry. Great. If you haven't read this in a while or ever, you need to go back. These stories are just amazing. You can't make this stuff up. 
Uh, so you go back, you got Jacob, he has a, a Leah, the wife he didn't plan on having but had to. He's got Rachel, his favorite wife. Uh, Joseph and Benjamin are the two kids from Rachel, but Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph and Benjamin, but particularly Joseph, is the favored son from his favorite wife. And the, the other ten brothers have a hard time with this. Lots of tension, lots of, lots of resentment, lots going on. And, and maybe we just need to step back, right, and, and remind ourselves just of some really, really important truths, right? It's, kind of sh- it's just glaring right there. The reminder that husbands never have a favorite wife. Right? It just never goes well. So teenagers, you're thinking and moving forward. Just you got to have that in your in your uh, journal even now. Right? Never have a favorite wife. Okay. So moving right along, Joseph is 17 years now. Okay, 17 years old. 17 years of being favored. Right? He's got the special coat. Right? He's he's used to having preferential treatment. All of the brothers recognize that, and, and uh, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers who are tending flocks, who knows how far away, a long journey, probably multiple days. The brothers see Joseph coming, and this is how we know that things are not good, is that as they see him coming across the field, they're already conspiring. They're at the point of coming to the conclusion that this is their opportunity to not have to put up with Joseph anymore. As the brothers see him come, their uh, bitterness is festered. Uh, they struggle with the idea of, of actually killing him, and so they strip him of his coat, throw him in a cistern, kind of this pit in the ground, and, uh, and they decide to have lunch because uh, they weren't sure exactly what to do, which is kind of a strange uh, choice, but some people think better in a full stomach, I guess. So we pick up the story, Genesis 37. And as the brothers sat down to eat their meal, they look up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. So it's nice Judah has some sort of kind of voice of reminding them, you know, at least he is our brother. And imagine what Joseph is thinking at this point, right? He's far from the favor and protection of his dad. He's in a pit. He's been stripped. He's probably, you know, not in good shape and anticipating getting killed. Now he's anticipating being shipped off by slave traders to who knows where doing who knows what. And so he's sold to this caravan. And it says that Joseph was taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And this is interesting, that we notice the narrator kind of inserting something that that we think is really kind of counterintuitive. Like it's kind of maybe the Sunday school answer, the right thing, but if we enter into the story, this is not actually what any of us would probably conclude. Verse 2 says that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Because right, if we're honest, we're really saying, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. If the Lord is with Joseph, right, Joseph is not going along with a, a, a caravan of slave traders being, right, it's the brothers who are being enslaved if God's really with him. But Joseph chose to live with the conviction that God was with him. And this is a thread, this is a theme that we see woven throughout Joseph's life. And living with the conviction that God was with him despite 
the circumstances that would make it really easy for him to come to a, a conclusion that God was absent allows him to make the best of his scenario. And, and we see that Potiphar recognizes Joseph and what he can contribute, his abilities. And he, he kind of promotes him to the head of the household. Right? So he, he, he recognizes, he notices Joseph and what he's capable of. And now he's kind of responsible for all of Potiphar's house. The challenge here is that things are going well, except that it's not only Potiphar that notices Joseph, it's Potiphar's wife. She notices Joseph. And she notices him as a great opportunity to take advantage of him sexually and take advantage of that power imbalance of, of kind of owner and slave. He refuses her advances, her constant kind of seduction. And, uh, and the reason he gives is amazing. He speaks about how Potiphar has put everything under his responsibility. And so there's a sense of saying, how could I, how could I betray uh, Potiphar this way by, by sleeping with you? But he goes even farther. In verse 9, he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Right? And Joseph's answer gives us that window into kind of this, this conviction that God was with him, right? Because we think of our weakest moments, the moments where, where we have kind of cut corners, where we have decided to kind of go against our better instincts or against our morals, our ethics, right? Those are the times where we're most tempted when we're feeling kind of alone, isolated, where no one's going to notice and no one cares, Right? And that's exactly where Joseph was. He was in a place where he could easily have justified kind of uh, violating his, his, uh, his, his ethics, his integrity, his morals, because he's far from home. He's far from anyone that should care. And yet he has this consciousness that, that to make that decision would be to sin against God. Joseph's values, his, uh, his integrity flows out of his sense, his conviction that God is with him even when situations and circumstances would have made him feel like he wasn't. Day after day, she tries to seduce him, but he resists. And you may have heard the quote, right? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. All right? Potiphar's wife continues to try and get him to, uh, to sleep with him. He resists, and then there's a point where she flips and turns and becomes furious with him. And, and she basically accuses him of trying to rape her. So then Potiphar is in this terrible situation, right, of saying, do I, you know, if I, if I, if I go with trusting Joseph, right, then I, now I'm in trouble with my wife, so I kind of have to be willing to throw Joseph under the bus, even though I'm going to lose a great employee. And it says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison... The Lord was with him. Again, this, the narrator making sure that we're conscious of the fact that Joseph continued to live as if God was with him despite what was happening around him. Even though we're thinking, wait, 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 if God is with you, Joseph doesn't go to prison, right? She goes to prison, right? And, and God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And again, we're thinking, wait, 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 if God's with you, you don't have to become friends with a prison warden, right? Because that's not how it should go. And so jo uh, Joseph's gone from being favorite son to betrayed brother, enslaved alien, and now a convicted rapist. 
And you know what hits me as I kind of revisit that story, and maybe for you, if you've never heard it or to, to see it again, is just to be reminded that <clears throat> the bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. Bad things have been happening to good people for a long time. This story is almost 4,000 years old. 16, 1700 years before the Common Era is when this story is placed. And it's easy for, maybe it's encouraging for us to be able to say, yeah, that's, that's right, I'm not the only person who's, who's going through hard times where I feel like bad things are happening even though I don't deserve them. But even let's flip that on its edge to remind ourselves that that God has been with good people going through hard things for a long time. Right? The reminder for us this morning that God has been with good people in bad times for a long time as well. So even in prison, Jonah, uh, Joseph's conviction that God was with him serves him well and becomes kind of the second in command within the prison. Uh, years go by, though. And Joseph continues to maintain this confidence, this conviction that he lives as if God is with him. <clears throat> two, two interesting uh, cellmates that Joseph bumps into, uh, both from Pharaoh's kind of inner uh, circle or, or kind of employee group. So one is the baker and one is the butler, and they find themselves in prison, right? And I find myself wondering, how does Pharaoh's baker end up in prison, right? Like, is it forgetting, you know, that it was Taco Tuesday? Is it, right? Like, did he burn something a few too many times? Like, what's going on there? Same with the butler, right? Did he get the wrong newspaper? Did he, you know, what is it that he, he didn't, he did that somehow uh, made them kind of end up there? But both of them end up with troubling dreams that they can't understand, right? Joseph finds himself, volunteers to say, I think I can help you with that. And he interprets both of the dreams for the butler and for the baker. Now, with the butler... Um, he, he shares with them this idea that, that in three days, your head is going to be raised and you're going to be restored to Pharaoh's court. You're going to get your job back. Great news. Now, with the butler, he says, your head will be raised. Unfortunately, it'll be right off your body. And the rest of your body will be impaled on a stake. So, so he interprets both dreams. Obviously, not great. And I can't help but think if I'm Joseph in that situation, when it comes to the baker, that I'm probably thinking, you know what? I have no idea on this one. Right? It's, nothing's coming to me. I have no idea, right? Who wants to be the bearer of, of bad news like that? But Joseph still kind of just shares the news regardless. Um, Joseph makes sure that he says, when you get restored back into Pharaoh's court, make sure you talk about me. Make sure you let them know who I am, what I've gone through, the injustices, everything that's there. Don't forget about me. Of course, the butler... Yeah, it's like, of course, why would I not? Like, you have just given me great news, and I'm so excited. So it totally is, is positive. And yet, days turn into weeks, weeks into months, and months into years, and Joseph hears nothing, still in prison. And for some of us, that probably feels like it's a little bit of a snapshot of our life story, right? That feeling of being forgotten, kind of, rotting away in the shadows, waiting for someone to notice, someone with power, someone with the keys to kind of give us that opportunity to kind of get back where we feel like we should be. But day after day, Joseph chose to live as if God was with him. Now, 
Joseph's 30 years old, so now we're up to, what is this, 13 years later? After kind of this dramatic change of events. And now we see the window that Pharaoh has some troubling dreams that no one seems to be able to understand. No one has insight in, none of his advisors. He'd have an extensive pool of people to draw from, and no one is giving him uh, the sense that they know what's going on. And finally, there's kind of that light bulb moment where the butler says, Joseph. So he probably goes to the Pharaoh and says, you know, I remember that time a few years ago when whatever happened wasn't a big deal, but I had to go to prison. I met this guy, Joseph, right? He helped me with my dream, and the other guy who wasn't really helped by his dream, but it was true, right? And so there'd be that sense of, of having to have that conversation, and then we pick it up in chapter 41. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, because obviously he wouldn't be in a great state, he came before the Pharaoh And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what Joseph says next is probably some of the most courageous things we could imagine anyone of saying. This is his chance, finally, right? Alien, slave, convicted, felon, all of that in front of the most important, most powerful person in the whole region. And Joseph replies, I cannot do it. And what do you think of the butler's thinking? Like, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to prison I go, right? I just said Joseph could do this, and now Joseph's saying he cannot do it. He says, but God, uh-oh, where are we going? But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I'm not sure that's even a better answer than I cannot do it. Because in some ways, it's kind of forcing this, this impression, this conviction that Joseph has that, Pharaoh, you are a small G God, right? He'd be considered a deity within kind of the Egyptian uh, kind of culture and religion. Uh, But my God, my big G God, he will show you what it means. Despite Joseph's audacity in this moment, Pharaoh still gives him the chance to be able to uh, understand, hear and explain the dream. And of course, uh, Joseph hears the dream, predicts seven years of abundance, where everything's going to be great, lots of crops, lots of grain, and then seven years of famine and, uh, and, and where things are going to be hard. And so that's the interpretation of the dream, but then he doesn't stop there. He, he kind of jumps into that next gap, and he then proceeds to advise Pharaoh how to prepare for the famine. He lays out a plan where the grain's taxed in those first seven years heavily and stored in strategic locations so that in the seven years of famine, Everyone is forced to basically buy their food from Pharaoh. And of course, that probably seemed like a good idea to Pharaoh, uh, which we read in verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So essentially, Pharaoh makes him prime minister with the the very specific task of following this this challenge of of making sure that the the Egyptian kind of empire makes it through these 14 years, and particularly the seven years of famine. And of course, the first years are great, and bumper crops, and they're able to store. And then the, the seven years of famine begins, and the crops don't come in. He opens the storehouses, sells the grains, and basically 
ended up owning all of the personal wealth in Egypt. A win for Pharaoh. But the famine spreads beyond the borders of Egypt. It wasn't just located to the Nile region. It was a bigger regional famine. And the rumor gets around that Egypt has grain. All the way up to the north, where Joseph's family is feeling the effects of the famine. We pick it up in chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? I love that statement. I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Hinge point in the story. The stage is set. The fortunes have been reversed. Now Joseph was the governor of the land and the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him and with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. Imagine that moment. You wonder why his brothers did not recognize him? It's because he walked like an Egyptian. (laughs) Sorry, a little humor for the dads there. Uh, They did not recognize him, not so much because of his walk, although it may have been distinctive, It's because the last time they remember their brother Joseph, it was a skinny, scared, 17-year-old, not sure what was going to happen next. And Joseph seeing his brothers for the first time in so long, right, filled with that sense of of what they had put him through, of what he had had to put up with. Says then Joseph could no longer, oh no, no. So the answer to this question, let's go back a bit here. This kind of sets us up for this really, really crucial question, right? When we find the brothers who were in the position of power are now the powerless. They're now the ones who are bowed before Joseph. And it reminds us of this question. What do you do when you've got the power? And your words determine the destiny of your enemy. doesn't happen all the time, doesn't happen frequently, but there are times where the tables are turned and we find ourselves in that position where we've got the power and our words determine the destiny of those who have kind of come against us. And the bottom line is the answer to this question has a lot to do with what we have done with bitterness all the way along. The more we harbor that resentment, the harder it is for that not to be kind of the conclusion that we come to And for the next three chapters, Joseph tests his brothers, right? He accuses them of being spies. He forces them to bring their younger brother. There's all of this. But then there's this moment where Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all of his attendants, all of his Egyptian court, he cried out, Has everyone leave my presence? And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Imagine the tension in that moment how big their eyes would be, right? And if there was a King James Version describing what would happen next, it's probably that the brothers weddeth themselves, <laughs> right? Their bowels released, right? Because that, that's exactly what would be there. It would be that sense of dread deep down that says, oh my goodness, the tables have been turned. And yet, uh, Joseph's response is, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified 
at his presence. And of course, they're terrified because they're filled with kind of that sense of knowing what should be coming their way based on what they had done to their brother. But they didn't need to be uh, terrified of Joseph because Joseph had lived throughout that whole season with a conviction that God was with him, which was the key to helping him keep his bitterness at bay. And what we know, what we know that Joseph couldn't have had any clue to understanding is that how Joseph would handle that situation was, was opening the door to God's plan of salvation that would continue, right? That the plan of salvation hung on Joseph's response to his brothers. His brothers represented 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That, that would turn into the nation of Israel, which would be the nation through which God would reveal Jesus, whose death would become, make him savior of the world. And so Joseph's response, in some ways, determined whether or not God would reveal himself and, and, and fulfill the promise through Abram. The same savior that would do for the world on the cross what Joseph would, do, would choose to do with his brothers, to forgive them. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. Classic reversal. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Profound statement. And it helps us to understand and really boil down this, this powerful truth. You will never experience the good that comes from the bad unless you recognize God was with you in the bad and then refuse to play God when things are good. You will never experience the good that can come from the bad unless you recognize that God was with you in the bad and then refuse to play God when things are good. Joseph continues, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What will you do when you've got the power and your words determine the destiny of your enemy. And there really are only kind of two options there. There's the payback, right? It's that instinct to say, yep, you're going to get what's coming to you. Eye for an eye. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. There's that response of, of wanting to go there. And the other choice is to pave it forward. To pave it forward. And, and essentially, forgiveness is how we pave it forward. And forgiveness is really just a concept, an idea, something that's just kind of out there and not even real until we speak it, right? Until that idea comes out and we actually share with and speak the words that begin to make it real. Joseph lived like God was with him, despite the horrible things that people did to him, and that helped him keep bitterness at bay. But that pivotal moment was still Joseph's choice to have to extend forgiveness, to be able to let his brothers know that he was not holding what they had done against him. So your ability to pave it forward, our ability to forgive, is largely determined by the perspective we maintain from then to the point where we're faced with it. And so this morning I want to give you just that challenge and encouragement to take your cues from the one 
who gave his life for you, right? We gather around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, reminding that he gave his life for us. And to not kind of gather around the idea of who has taken life from us, who has harmed us, who has, has robbed us, from the one who was with us, not the ones who leave us high and dry. And it's in that moment when we do that that we are most like our Father in heaven. And that's most when we are free. So one of the interesting characters that doesn't get a lot of attention uh, that, that I've just been reminded of, or it's just kind of stuck out for me, is, is the butler. And the, what reminds me of the butler is that there was a sense of how easy it was for him to forget about Joseph, despite just how significant his reversal was, his, his change of status. And yet it took years for him to remember Joseph. The butler reminds us that gratitude doesn't come easy, right? It's not something that's natural for many of us. And it's not something that, that actually we kind of remember for very long, maybe in the moment. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why Jesus left us with just a few powerful rituals. One of them is baptism, this idea that we, we kind of demonstrate the change of our state, like a, who we were and who we are as we enter into water. But the other simple ritual that he left us with as his followers is this simple meal of bread and wine. We use crackers and juice. The simple meal, right, where it's an opportunity for us to savor the bread as a way to remember his body broken for our freedom. To savor the juice as a, as a way to remember his blood shed for our freedom. So this morning we actually have an opportunity to share in this simple meal. We call it communion. And we have the opportunity to, to partake in it this morning. Um, and this simple meal helps us to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To remember how grateful we are for the freedom that he purchased for us, that he accomplished for us through the cross and through his resurrection. So this morning we're, we're going we're gonna to sing a song together. Um, and, and again, the encouragement is that not all of us are, are exactly sure where we're at in our journey. And if you're still trying to figure out kind of where you are at with God and how to define your relationship, then obviously there's just no pressure to have to, to partake this morning. It's just something that maybe you can observe, and there's no pressure there. Some, sometimes we even choose not to participate if we're aware that maybe we're just hanging on to some resentment and bitterness that needs to be taken care of, maybe before we kind of enter into this profound act of remembrance of what God has done for us. So we're going to close with a song that, that has some pretty powerful lyrics, and it really dovetails so well with the story of Joseph. It says, through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. It's a great prayer. Through it all, through it all, it is well. So let my soul and uh, let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and the winds still know his name. He knows yours. He is with you. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come together this morning as a, a community, a group of people who are all on our own individual journeys. Um, we all have our own histories, and uh, all of us have had some sort of, of run-ins with people who have taken advantage of us, who have betrayed us, who have let us down, who have just not come through like we thought they should. 
God, we want to acknowledge that there's so much room in all of that for us to hang on to bitterness and resentment. And maybe we just need to confess today that, that, that we need to start a new page. We need to clear the slate and acknowledge that that resentment and bitterness prevents us from paving a way forward that allows us to live in freedom, that, that makes us more likely to hurt people as opposed to help people. Father, we pray this morning that, that we would just have a great opportunity to reflect and remember what you have done for us. Your incredible life, death, and resurrection and how it changes everything and offers us a freedom that we don't deserve. We thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for his forgiveness, which is just a mirror of the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.